Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 6. This is one of those extra-packed chapters of the Bible. Um, In the context, uh, perhaps you're familiar with Jesus' I Am sayings. This is when Jesus says that he is the bread of life. In the context, you can see at the beginning of John chapter 6 is actually the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And so where we pick up, we're only a day or two removed from that miracle, and that's why these crowds are looking for Jesus. So if you would, read with me here, um, John 6, starting in verse 22, we'll read through verse 35. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and who gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. This is God's word for us this morning. Simply just want to look at three things with you. I wish we'd had time to read this whole chapter. But three things I want to consider with you this morning that Jesus points these people and his own disciples to is working, believing, and feeding. Working, believing, and feeding. The first one is working. And again, the context here is that he's just performed this miracle, the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. And so naturally, these people have witnessed this. It was clear to everyone you read earlier in John 6 and the other Gospel. It was clear to everyone that was there, though they, they didn't all know the details of what had happened. It was clear that a miracle had been performed in this feeding of the 5,000. And so in the days after, they are all stirred up and wanting to find Jesus once again. And it's kind of amazing the way this, I love sometimes the way interchanges with Jesus happen, especially this one right here. They spend all this energy and effort trying to find Jesus. They find him on the other side of the lake. They ask him a question, how did, when did you get here? And Jesus completely ignores their question. He answers them, but he doesn't answer their question. He actually answers what's going on inside of them. 
what they're working for, what they're laboring after. He identifies what it is, and he says to them, don't labor for the food that perishes. Seems kind of out of left field. How does this have anything to do with what's going on? But I want to just concentrate on this, this first part for a second. Don't labor for the food that perishes. So it's interesting, Jesus does not say do not labor. That's not what he says. He says do not labor for that which perishes. Basically, what you're seeking in this moment is not what I was showing you a day or two ago. And so there's this kind of bottom line point. We see it throughout the Gospels and here what he's identifying for them that we are all, in some sense, laboring. We are all striving. We are all working for something. We are all going after something. And the question is, are we going after the things that perish? Is the way that we go about these things the way that perishes? I, one of my, I'm not a huge movie quote guy, but one that has always stuck with me is from the movie The Chariots of Fire, which is an older movie about the uh, missionary uh, Eric Liddell. But there's another character in that movie, Harold Abrams, who's a runner, he's an Olympic sprinter, and there's a scene in the movie where before a race he says, uh, he's alone with somebody, and he says to them, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? It's a haunting question. <laughs> ten lonely seconds to justify my entire existence, but will I? Suggests Harold Abrams was laboring for that which perishes. It was not something that would ever answer the question he was asking. And I think in a sense, Jesus is drawing these people and us to that question. What are we forever in pursuit of, always chasing, but we don't even know what it is? And so the question that stands out for us at the beginning of this is, what are you striving for? It can be a harrowing question to ask ourselves. What is it that I am putting my energy towards day in and day out in my life? What am I leading others to put their energy toward? Keller, Tim Keller calls these things, these things that we labor after, our functional trusts. These things that we are depending on even when we don't even know that we're depending on them. And there's a host of diagnostic questions we could think about. How do we answer this question for ourselves? One, a couple that I thought of for myself is, what, what most easily in your life exasperates you? Just gets you out of sorts easily. There's something probably behind that that is pointing you to what you're striving after. What is, it, what is it that could ruin your day in an instant? We have all kinds of things. How my job is going, how my children are talking to me or relating to me, how the stock market's doing, how, political, uh, how, how politics are going, um, whether they're going the way we want them to or not. We all have this haunting question chasing us that we have, we have this or that to lean on to justify our existence, to make us right, to make us feel okay, but will it? Jesus says don't labor for that. It perishes, and you will perish right along with it. And so here, these Jews, they ask this question about, they say, well, you know, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. They knew 
from the Old Testament, there, there was one to come, there was a promised one to come, a second Moses, as it were, that would feed the people once again with manna. And so they're, they're referencing, referencing this, hey, we know our Bible, we know what's coming, so are, are we on the right track here? And you, we read it in Deuteronomy 8, the point that God was making in Deuteronomy 8. He says, Moses said, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The people in Deuteronomy are about to enter the promised land. They're about to have everything materially in a sense that God had promised. They were ready for it. But Moses reminds him, he let you hunger that you might know that man does not live by bread alone. Going into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, that is not the end. It's a blessed means, but it's not the end. And so Jesus here is stopping these people, stopping us to expose the motive, motives of our hearts. He's saying, don't follow me because you love the things that you're getting from me. You didn't see the sign, you just ate your fill, and you thought that that was it. He says, you want that end, but I actually am the end itself. And we do this too. In lots of ways, we, if we were asked ourselves, is Jesus the object of my love? Is Jesus himself the object of my love? Or has what I've been longing and striving after, what I think I'm going, what I thought life would be like with Jesus? If you're anything like me, have you ever had that moment where you thought, I thought it was going to be different than this? Jesus is pointing these people beyond the external and says, don't labor for that. Don't labor for that which perishes. So how do we do that? How do we move beyond that? Well, he points the people then to believing. Verse 28, they get it. They get it in a sense. Okay, we get you, Jesus. Verse 28, they say, well, what do we need to do? And I love it when Jesus is asked this question because it's usually the same, and he says it here. Believe. And now, if you put yourself in their shoes for a second, like, okay, but yeah, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> does that even answer their question? He says it does. And actually, you read on in chapter 6, he's going to say this in some form five times. Believe in me. Believe in the one whom God has sent. Believe, and you will have eternal life. That's the answer. That's the labor. That's the work. Believe. I always think of Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas in jail, the Philippian jail, and their chains fall off, the doors fly open, the jailer awakes, thinks all the prisoners have escaped, so he's about to take his own life because he, he thinks he's doomed, and Paul cries out, don't kill, don't harm yourself, we're still here. And so he goes and he falls down before them and says, what must I do? And they say, believe. Believe, and you and your household will be saved. And we love that story. We love telling that story, maybe to other people, to our children. That's a great Sunday school story. But if we're honest, do we think that story has anything to do with us? Moment of crisis, what do I, what do I need to do to fix this? Believe. And again, that's the question these people are asking, and that's the answer that Jesus gives. I think we get a hint of what Jesus is getting at in Romans chapter 4 when Paul talks about faith 
in this way, and he brings up Abraham. He says it like this. He says, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are counted as his due, not as a gift. And to the one who does not work but believes, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Contrast there between believing and working. Again, Romans 4, 5, the one who does not work but believes. And so in a sense there, saving faith, saving faith at its inception, saving faith in its continuance forward in our lives, living by saving faith, it begins when we see, when we know that we have nothing else to trust in, nothing else to trust in but God. Is that good news to you? Saving faith is when we know that I have nothing else to trust in but God. Or saving faith begins when I stop trusting or looking to my abilities or my strength, and I start looking to his ability and to his strength. Or saving faith begins when I realize it's not about me, but about him. Not about what I need to do, but about what he has promised to do and what he has done. That's the work of God for the food that does not perish. To believe. To believe that he can do and to believe that only he can do. And that is the hardest part of it. To believe that I cannot be good enough. To believe that I cannot even believe enough to believe in fact that it's going to have zero to do with me and that's what we find so hard but Jesus here is beginning to open for them and for the rest of this chapter that is precisely what gives you life and continues to give you life the other way of doing life perishes and so that's why Jesus then goes on there to say, look, I'm not just the giver. I came to give it, yes, but I am also the gift. I came to give it to you, but it's me. <laughs> it's me. And that's what they're having so much trouble understanding. This is actually also what the disciples are, themselves are having a hard time understanding. You read the feeding of the 5,000 account in all the Gospels, but one thing that always sticks out to me is when the question comes up, where are these people going to eat? Jesus immediately says, you give them something to eat. The disciples are like, what are you talking about? In John chapter 6, verse 6, he actually says he said that to test them, knowing what he was about to do. He was testing them, seeing, did they understand yet that this was about him and who he was? And so he says, I am the bread of life. I give life to the world. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger or thirst. I am the one that will never cast out. I am the one that will lose none that are given to me. I will raise each and every one of them on the last day. It's me. It's me. Paul Again, says something interesting in Philippians 3, 
Philippians 3 talks about his former identity, how he had this stellar identity as far as it came to the worldly definitions of it. Um, he talks about the things, all the things that he had worked for. He's a Pharisee, a keeper of the law, circumcised on the eighth day, all this confidence in the flesh. And then in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, he says, whatever gain I had, and he had a lot, that's the point. He says, I counted it as loss. What, not only was it not a positive, it was a negative I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus, Paul is saying that there's nothing in my life that is gain to me compared with the fact that I know Jesus and I continue forward in this life knowing Jesus. That's it. That's all I need. And that's all that I am. I count everything as lost because knowing Jesus is better. He'll go on to say, I suffer, actually suffer the loss of all things because I want to gain Jesus. Now, I, I want you to think about Jesus, Jesus is pointing these people about what they should be feeding on, what should they should be striving after. What would it be like to take some of these things in our lives? Jesus and God, don't, they don't discount important things in our lives that we need to plan for and we need to be involved in. We need to use our voices for or against. But what are we feeding on? What, is, what are we seeking to build us up? What is it that we want to build us up and to nourish us and to grow us and to move us forward? problem is we tend to try to feed on the things that never could feed us. And so again, God wants us to have good things. God wants to bless us, and he does, and he has. But the gift of the gospel, Rankin Wilborn says this in his book, Union with Christ, the gift of the gospel, ultimately, is the gift of God himself. He's given us himself. That's why when we come to the table in a moment, what the great reminder is, we don't come to give something. We come to receive what God has given. And that's why we are commanded to do it regularly so we can reorient ourselves to that truth, posture ourselves to this, this truth that we need to receive again and again and again and again. And that's why Jesus says, I am, he'll go on to say later on, I am the living bread. I'm not just the bread of life, but I'm also the bread for life. And so the last thing here, there's working, there's believing, and there's feeding. We didn't read it, but when you get towards the end of this interchange of verse uh, 51, Jesus presses a little further and says, if you really want this, you've got to eat it. <laughs> you got to eat it. Now look, they, and he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And we know that that in some way is pointing forward to communion. But how must this have sounded to these people? What in the world is he talking about? Now, we'll give them credit. They knew Jesus wasn't being literal, but they had no idea how to understand, at least in this moment, what he was talking about. Drinking blood in the Old Testament, that was a huge no-no. What is he getting at? Well, here's my best guess as we conclude here. I think, for one, Jesus understands faith is hard. 
Jesus understands that faith is hard. I think that's one of the explanations to how in the world could he be so patient over and over again in the Gospels and with us. He understood faith was hard. Jesus understood that it is hard for us to take our eyes off of ourselves and take our eyes off the things that we want and the things that we think will give us life and to put our eyes on him. And so I think to drive it all home when he begins about eating it and even eating him, not literally, I think what, the reality, what he's pointing to is that this is not just some idea or truth merely to be understood or affirmed. It's a reality to be lived into. Yeah, you saw me do a miracle and you, you've affirmed that I'm a great guy. But that's not it. This is a reality to be lived into. You gotta take it in, you gotta ingest it, you gotta digest it, you gotta let it fill you up. And what I think that tells us is that coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, it's understanding, it's believing that that does something to you and that does something in you and it does not stop. It strengthens you, it nourishes you, it grows you, it changes you. If you're a Christian this morning, have you ever thought to yourself, again, I said this earlier, have you ever had those moments in life, if you're anything like me, where you thought, I thought it was going to be different than this. I thought it was supposed to be different than this. It wasn't supposed to be this lonely, or it wasn't supposed to be this hard, or I wasn't supposed to fail like that again. And so again, what if becoming a Christian is not just about coming to believe certain things about God, though that is ultimately, so ultimately important? What if it's not merely, what if being a Christian is not merely what, about what you do or don't do, though it certainly includes that? The problem is when we reduce it to those type of things, the problem is Jesus is still outside of you. You can live those ways, becoming a Christian, believing certain things about God, or living as a Christian, it's what I do or don't do. You can still do those things with Jesus outside of your life. And then you've missed it. And Jesus says, you got to take it in. And so what Jesus is saying is eternal life begins and then continues when you feed on him in your hearts by faith. It begins when Jesus joins his life to yours and when through him you have fellowship with God. It's something that you, and it's something that we are called to experience in our lives here and now and every moment forward. It's something to feed on. If you're anything like me, there are times in your life where there's no other words that no other word that could describe how you feel other than like empty. You just get you have those weeks or those days where at the end of it you just, I just feel empty. I don't have anything left. And we try to look at root causes and we try to form solutions. We we think I gotta pray more. I need to get back, I need to read my Bible more, I need to be around my brothers and sisters in church more. I gotta preach the gospel to myself more. I gotta refrain from that more. And the answer to all those is yes, yes. But you see, if that is the only answer, what the problem with all of those are. 
They all depend on you. And that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is the same as the moment you become a Christian. It's all about him. And depending on him and looking to him and feeding on him. I had a friend who I think it's safe to say she got married uh, a little later in life than I think she had ever envisioned. And I'll never forget at her rehearsal dinner her sister telling the story about how she knew that her sister was going to marry this guy. And it was, it was a night that she had gone on a date with him and texted her sister as soon as she got home. And the sister recounted this. This is what the text said. Tonight, he told me he loved me. I believe him. And it feels good. I'll never forget that because no matter where we find ourselves, we need that text message, don't we? He loves you. Do you believe it? That is something to feed on, to feast on. And he didn't just give it once. He continues to give it day after day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the bread of life that you've so abundantly given us. We pray that you would give us even the strength to come once again and to feed in our hearts by faith in the one who has given us all we need. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.